Welcome to Opening Dharma Access, a podcast where we hear stories from BIPOC teachers about their Dharma experiences and practice, and how those inform the ways they are sharing the Dharma today. I am Lama Karma Yeshe Chidrin, your co-host for this episode. Joining me today is co-host Kyra Jewel Lingo and Revan Lian Shutt creator and producer of this podcast, and our dear Dharma sister. So, Leanne, we get to start with interviewing you. And um, our first question is, how do you identify yourself racially, ethnically, and any specific identities uh, within the overarching Black, Indigenous, people of color term. Thank you for the question. It's a complex and layered question and ever-evolving. I was born a Buddhist in Vietnam, and I then was adopted by Caucasian when I was eight years old with my sister. And so I identify as Vietnamese-American ethnically, Politically, socially, I identify as Asian American, certainly in terms of Vietnamese American, an immigrant in diaspora, and I identify as cisgender female, um, also as she and her, though I sometimes wonder whether I should put a they in there because I'm definitely gender non-conforming and I've always been, and we didn't have that framing back in the 80s. So um, it's a ex- exploration there. I think that's, that's what I would say about racially and ethnically right now. Thank you. Lan, I'm curious about the uh, practice settings that you encountered as a Dharma practitioner and student and what you found supportive or not supportive in those? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's, <laughs> on one level, we, we need to define practice settings, right? And I think that's certainly a question that um, is key in mainstream United States, North American uh Buddhist communities in terms of predominantly white convert settings, which is the the bulk of my practice. And that has a lot to do with the fact that I um, lost my language of origin, Vietnamese, um, even though I tried and there were a lot of issues about lack of support, certainly. Um, And so in terms of Buddhist practice, I have memories of my mother going to the temple, offering incense. So to me, like chanting and incense has a very visceral and I, and also bowing. I remember like one of the POC meditation uh, retreats I went to at a mostly predominantly white convert insight place it was a BIPOC one, but an Asian teacher explained bowing, and they did it doing walking because in this lineage, they didn't really bow. It's like optional. And sometimes people bow when they enter the meditation hall and bow and they left, but it was not part of the way that the 
practice can, um, was talked about. And so for many people raised in the United States, as my experience of it, bowing is a really difficult thing, right? And, and actually in the bigger community too. And so whereas bowing is very natural to me, and um, which doesn't mean, you know, I knew how to do proper prostrations or whatever, but in terms of just the bowing itself. And so one way that that also plays out is when I first started teaching at a mostly convert practice place, it's, it was called meditation center, not, not a temple per se, um, while it was very predominantly people of color and very social justice oriented, I was talked to about how people felt I made them bow. When I got up at the beginning of every talk, um, I when I came with just the way I was taught, I would do three full prostration to the altar. Then I would turn around and bow to the assembly, to the group. And it came back that I needed to explain myself more and that in my doing, people felt like they were made to bow. And which is interesting because when I taught day longs, you know, I would start with that and I bow when I hit the bell. <laughs> you know, I bow to the seat. I bow away whenever I go to sit down, which is part of the Soto Zen tradition I learned. And so as the day went on, more and more people would bow to me, but but I didn't explain it per se. And so I was told that I need to do that. So I think one of the things I would say that in why I started out in the North American insight tradition of practice in terms of meditation practice, the bulk of my Buddhist practice has been in the Soto Zen tradition, which has, of course, a lot more forms and a lot more um, ceremonies that's embodied. And to me, one of the Zen, what's the word I want to use today? One of the Zen main forms and the way I understand it as a as a reactionary to how things got so nitty-gritty um, and specific in the Theravada tradition historically is that we're really into non-conceptualizing and I think there can be a misapplying of that as in uh, the sense of not giving instruction about how to like do forms and how to um, negotiate the container of practice. For instance, when I first went to uh, the Soto Zen monastery that I practiced in, you know, as a summer student, which meant you were intending to stay for the summer and then into the winter. And it was a place in which when you work the five and a half months of summer, then you got credit for the six months of monastic practice to rain retreats or angos of three months each. So for the students, they had zazen instruction, which was very basic, you know, how to enter the zendo and then literally posture, which is the, the main focus of, of um, meditation instruction in the Soto Zen tradition. And then we had a meeting of the summer students and one of the students who is also a person of color said, are we going to get more instruction on morning service, which is chanting and bowing, right? A lot of forms <laughs> and watching the priests go up and do things and coming back, getting up, sitting down, sitting a certain way, this way, or, and different kinds of bows and different ceremonies. So, and the, the tanto, the head of practice at the time said, no. And that was just it. And when we 
asked him afterward, he said, oh, because when you don't know, then you look around more and you learn by looking around. And, you know, and we're not into like conceptualizing, you just learn by doing, you know, and it sounds great. And as I've gone along in my Zen practice, I really have understood and embraced that more the not knowing mind and the, the, in the engaging is the realization as A. A. Dogen, the founder of Soto Zen would say, great idea. And to me for BIPOCs, for people of color, the consequences in our life experience of not knowing is huge, right? Punishment, uh, not getting services. Um, so it's a good concept. It's a great practice concept. And in how do we, this is part for me of what, how we make practice accessible. And that's why I have taken on the, um, the intention of really making practice accessible by including more instructions. And by that, I, and not always like directly, but just kind of talking about it and then leaving it as an option to be asked to share that. For instance, in my meditation group, while some of the students have taken the precepts and, you know, we're the rakasu and part of our practices every morning, we do the rope chant. I didn't instill that until I had kind of a critical mass of students. And then they were like, oh, we don't like to go to that temple where it's predominantly white. So can we do the rope chant here? And so now it's part of our form. Same thing with bound to the cushion in a way. It's, it's not a, a, a must, it's an option. Uh, and so I, would you say that those practice experiences informed how you're teaching the students now very directly? Yeah, most certainly. For instance, the, the, the one thing I, I realize is, um, you know, the saying, the finger pointing at the moon in Zen. Um, to me, of course, the, you know, the moon is the enlightenment and the finger is just pointing us towards that. To me, um, practice, we need to kind of draw the dots can't just point. And and I don't mean that in any way derogatory. It just means in much more, you have to really kind of trace the whole thing. In part, I don't think it's just about, you know, being people of color or not. It's more that there's a kind of presumption of that shared information in dominant society that I don't think that is always um, accessible to people. Also, that again, Entering spaces that are different has different resonance for each of us. And of course, the irony in, in, in my main practice containers, um, as I was practicing, is that is Soto Zen, which came from Japan, now embodied by mostly predominantly white men in particular, or just certainly white people, taking that on. And so there's both... Japanese cultural forms and temple forms and white dominant form that that is in a sense kind of a thing in itself and is foreign period and so for people of color coming in it's actually that much more of a disconnected does that make sense There, there are many layers of differences and so essentially 
showing that more, describing that more. So in one level, that that feedback I got to share more um, was a disconnect on one level, and then at the time, good information to to receive and to to help me really clarify what a practice container is. And so I think that's why a lot of the way I teach is that I formulate these containers for people to engage with, um, like monthly programs, like um, telling people what practice discussions are. And that's something that you can come and talk to a teacher about your practice. I didn't know that when I first started, and I um, it's up in retreats. And so also the sense then of a relationship between a teacher and a student, I think in a lot of dominant culture, Buddhism or practice of medi- of the Dharma or sometimes just meditation, um, it's very much, much more consumer based. You come for a service and, you know, to a Dharma talk or to a class and you want information and people get upset if they don't get certain kind of information. It's also been framed a lot as result oriented as opposed to interaction and in the interaction, you know, you realize, right? Again, as Dogen, practice realization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, thank you for, for sharing all this. It reminds me of uh, what my teacher, Tai, would say if a reporter wanted to do an article mm-hmm. on or interview him, he would say, you have to come and practice here for a week and then I'll give you an interview. But the sense of, you know, the best things that you can receive are through our actual interactions, our connections as humans, as, you know, studying with the community, being together rather than just answer my questions so I can, you know, plug these things in because then the transformation doesn't happen. Um, Well, you've kind of spoke to this some, but given what you've been sharing about, um, you know, the different settings that were supportive or not and and um, how your life as a BIPOC person has informed your teaching. How do you work with students of color? How do you, um, you know, craft these different spaces that you were starting to talk about given what what wasn't supportive for you, what you would have needed more of, how are you transmitting this in, in new ways to your students, especially students of color? I think first is that I um, have more clarity. I have a sense of that we need to create a container to be able to hold the, the symptoms of oppression. I think what is not addressed a lot in mainstream white convert Buddhist settings is that there is a sense that there is a norm and that everyone should fit into the norm as opposed to allowing for differences. And so, like, I've always given meditation instruction and all the postures and variations on that even. Talk about, certainly there's benefit to holding still, but the stillness is not a immobile kind of stillness. It's much more a centering kind of stillness. Um, uh, talking to people about how to anchor themselves much more, literally. Um, like one of the meditations I have taken to doing is a safety, 
much more focus on safety. So beginning by looking around, and these days as we're on Zoom a lot, uh, and, and, you know, with the pandemic, I also started to give more instructions in meditation, which is not a Zen, a Soto Zen thing. So giving much more instruction and guided meditation. So in this one, you know, you look around your own home and locate the colors, the objects, a few things. And then when you go to do the internal, you also scan your internal home or environment to find out what what feels safe here what feels accessible here as a starting point because and and also you know of course saying if like closing your eyes even which is a way that's taught often um is gives you more of a sense of disconnect and um, disassociation then certainly open your eyes and it's totally okay to to keep your eyes open so variations like that i think so allowing for more difference of of um, the meditative postures. And then the other thing is um, really encouraging people to trust their experience. And also as a body, um, if that's accessible to them. So really much more grounding ways of knowing. And then lately I've also been talking about resting. And finally, when you know, instead of this like, okay, I got this. What's the next thing I need to get to? What's the next thing? Um, so just relaxing and resting and trusting yourself and your experience, certainly building the capacity to do that and and then trusting in that. Um, and, and then that, that as a, a sense of agency. Yeah. And just being more inclusive about my my examples and my quotes, I mean, that makes, uh, makes all the difference. Um, it's, a, it's little, little things, but certainly. Um, and then speaking from my own life experience, it's interesting, you know, uh, one time I was where I am mostly trained in, a predominantly white convert center, and I was giving Dharma talks pretty regularly. And you know, a white man came to me and said, why do you always talk about yourself? <laughs> and I said, hmm, one, I'm not quite sure. I always talk about myself. And if I'm using an example, I'm usually trying to say something I did wrong. <laughs> and this is what I learned from it dharmically, or it's a dharma example, right? Um, and then really, don't we all speak from our own location? And I think that's the thing where there's an assumption um, and then when I went to back to check, you know, most of the other teachers' talks, they talked about themselves all the time, but they were mostly white men. And how come, you know, they don't get those questions? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and at the same time from students, I know what they respond to is, oh, there's mirroring here. There's, yeah, um, yeah a sense that my life uh, is being reflected. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so important, I think, especially for students that, you know, share our, our identity, whether it's as a BIPOC or um, Asian American, you know, that that's exactly what they wouldn't get from another teacher is what it's like for you to be in this 
stream of practice and, you know, experiencing it through your body, through your consciousness. And so um, I know that that has been really important for me to, as a student, you know, to see people who, who have not had, had my experience and how, how does the practice look in their lives? So, yeah. Yeshi, do you want to say anything in, in closing? Actually, I'd love to ask similar question to what you just said, because I was really struck by your being asked to share about bowing. And I had a very similar question to what you just said. Um, uh, do you feel that this, that it had to do with the bowing per se, or was it something about your appearance and your, your, you are obviously an Asian American person. Would it be different if it was a white man, for example, who was bowing? Hmm. I'm, I'm not sure because, well, I'm not a hundred percent sure because one, I had done many at that time, I'd done many workshops and taught at, se- at several of the meditation groups that were uh, queer or people of color, and the daylongs were either open to everyone or to queers or to people of color. Um, and then I got the feedback, mm, though, now that I think about it, I will say it was from the queer <laughs> community. While they spoke for the whole center, because they also the person who talked with me, who who was also a a white queer person who represented the center more, was on the on the organizing committee. Um, I think part of it had to do with that the the the, the queer group there was predominantly white, and in fact, I was part of the planning group for that meditation group later and they certainly was like oh how do we bring more BIPOC to our group so I think certainly it had a lot to do with that um yeah you know that's the thing when when um there's a lot of intersection of oppressions (laughs) right is that it's you always wonder hmm which aspect of this is is being is are people feel challenged by or or I'm being challenged? Um, so, yeah. Does that answer your question? Do you want to share a little yes, bit about it does. yours? I'm just I'm curious because I do feel that in the uh, mainstream white convert Buddhist spaces that I've um, encountered. Ritual practice and definitely bowing or full prostrations has a character of foreignness to it, or at least that's the messages that that I get when I go into those spaces. So I was curious, you know, what that setting was that came up for you, because one of the things that I'm very sensitive to nowadays is how... um, the, the phrase cultural baggage gets bandied about. <laughs> so uh, in some spaces, bowing would be cultural baggage. I personally don't experience it that way, and most of the practitioners I work with are uh, in Asian heritage Buddhist centers, even if they are not 
people of color themselves. And they have a very different take to that. That's not baggage at all. It's it's a very rich, important component to their practice. And there's a kind of invisibility that I experience from the phrase baggage that really diminishes a very embodied, rich, and valued practice across Buddhist lineages in Asia. So I was very interested to hear how that worked for you. Yeah, it was a meditation center that's actually very social justice oriented. And um, I will say, having been with that center for over 10 years now, I think we're going on 14 years, um, that it started out, it was called the meditation space, and now it's called the temple that air that space so i think it's i think i think that's part of what the 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 larger united states and and, maybe i don't want to say larger the the mainstream dominant um known buddhism in the united states in the california area i'll just say that too um bay area uh san francisco bay area is that you know, because if you talk about going to an Asian temple, it's always bowing in incense, or that's been my experience, right? And so um, it's just part of it. And and in fact, you you don't question that when you enter. And then, of course, I'm speaking from an Asian Buddhist standpoint, so I've never questioned it. So I'll... I'll, I'll um, own that that location right um and so i i yeah i think i think there's something to it and i think in a way we're all trying to figure it out and and um try to be respectful of each other and learn from our mistakes and seeing where we were unaware and we come become more aware and then how do we become more inclusive and i think this is also why it's really useful because there's also that thing you know where we think oh we're all bipocs so we're all going to get along or we're all buddhists and we're going to get along or you know we're all social justice people so we're going to get along and and to remember that um there are a lot of differences here and how do we share that and how do we keep opening up to each other, which in a way is also just practice, right? How do we keep opening up to where we weren't conscious, where we were unaware? And then how do we let that in to, to inform us and transform us and then keep on enacting that? Yeah, so thank you. That's beautiful, Leanne. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Liam. This has been Lama Karma Yeshe Chidren and Kara Jewel Lingo for Opening Dharma Access with Reverend Leanne Shutt sharing their Dharma experience as a BIPOC teacher. Join us in coming months for discussions with more teachers. Look for new episodes on the first of every month. In between episodes, we'll also share a meditation mindfulness practice, chant, or other form of practice from our guests with you. Come back to check that out and to keep on listening to our BIPOC teachers. Be sure to subscribe for notifications and to rate and review the podcast to help us spread the word. Check the episode notes for resources and email us at suddenly.com. 
a number two z at gmail.com with any questions. Let's open Dharma access to all beings. Mm-hmm.